Good morning, wherever you are, and welcome to the Book Collector podcast. The Book Collector now presents you with part two of Emil Offenbacher, A Memoir, Our Escape to New York. It is read here by James Fleming. Our only direction was to the south, since the Germans were advancing from the north. For the next two weeks, I walked through a sizable part of France, sleeping in the fields or in barns, always in the company of my comrades from the camp and crowds of fleeing people and deserting soldiers. I saw many of the older people fall exhausted to the wayside. Occasionally we were bombed by Italian planes. The Italians had entered the war at the last minute and concluded an armistice with France only several days after the Germans. By the time I reached Limoges, my feet were bleeding. There, I learned that according to the conditions of the armistice, France had been divided into an occupied zone in the north and an unoccupied zone in the south with Vichy as its capital. Limoges was the first city we came to, which was in the unoccupied zone. What a relief! We did not have to run any longer. We stayed only a short time in Limoges, during which we were assigned to the municipal stadium where we slept on straw in a big hall. Having nothing else to do, I walked through the city, and there I came across a second-hand bookstore, which of course I entered. While I was browsing through the dealer's stock, I came across a rather curious volume, printed in the later part of the 19th century, consisting of short stories of a psychosexual nature, whose author was unknown to me. The book intrigued me, and I asked for the price. It was ten francs, which was ten percent of all the money I had left. Nevertheless, I purchased the book and brought it to my temporary home where I began to read it. As soon as I read the first story, called Mademoiselle Tontal, I was struck by the similarity of the plot with that of a famous masterpiece of that period. On the straw bag next to me, an elderly German teacher was resting. I still remember his name, Professor Baumann. I turned to him and said, Professor, please do me the favour of reading this story. After he had read it, I asked him, Does this remind you of something? It did not. Don't you think, I said, that this is the same story as Strindberg's Miss Julia? By God, you are right, he said. I promised myself to do some work on the subject if I ever came out alive. One year later, during my first weeks in New York, when I had nothing better to do, I wrote an article on that subject, which was published by the Psychoanalytic Review, to whose editor I had been referred by one of my customers, the psychiatrist Clement Fry. A few days later, a group of refugees was ordered to move to the nearby town of Belac, where we were put into French army uniforms and assigned to a work camp as prestataire, a hitherto rarely used designation which meant providers of certain services. Our work consisted of ranging vehicles in a car park, so that they could be taken over by the Germans in good order. There was hardly any work to it at all, and it really only served as an excuse to keep us busy while the Vichy government decided what to do with us. Given the circumstances, this was as desirable a situation as we could wish for, except for those who, like myself, lived in uncertainty about the fate of their families. I had left Anne and our two children in Neo now situated in the occupied zone. 
While I was in Limoges, I was able to send them the kind of postcards which the Germans allowed to be sent from the non-occupied to the occupied zone, the text of which was pre-printed and left room for only very short personal data. All Anne therefore knew of me was that I had escaped to the non-occupied zone and that I had reached Limoges, whereas I had had no news from her whatsoever. I was naturally worried, as she had little money left, and I knew all about the difficulties in crossing from the occupied to the non-occupied zone. In fact, Anne, who had gone through some painful experiences in Niort, including having to leave her dwelling place because the Porcheron family was afraid to have her with them any longer, had decided to join me at Limoges. She actually succeeded in passing the demarcation line with our two small children under rather dramatic circumstances, being assisted by one of her travelling companions, a friendly Frenchman who turned out to be the mayor of Belac, Maître de Bordes. When he learned that Anne's destination was Limoges, he persuaded her to come with him to Belac, from which Limoges was easy to reach. Belac at that time was the place to which the American Red Cross had relocated, and Anne decided to go there to find out about the possibility of sending Claude to America, where my parents had moved to from Holland. As it happened, I had gone there a few days earlier for the very same reason, and by chance the worker remembered my visit. While she could not be of any help to Anne as far as Claude was concerned, she was able to tell her that I had come in wearing a French uniform and that a group of foreign workers was stationed in a French army camp just outside Belac. If she went there, she told Anne, she would have a chance of finding me. Anne has often told the story of how she arrived at the camp with Claude when I was away at work. A colleague from whom she inquired for me remembered only my last name, but assured her immediately of my presence once she showed him Claude and asked him if the Offenbacher he knew could be the father of this boy. Claude, as a child, resembled me strikingly. Our family now being reunited again, we had to find a place to live. Not an easy undertaking at this particular moment. With the help of Maître Debord, we found a house in Balak, where we were to spend the next seven months. Under any other circumstances, this house would have been far from ideal. There were rats in the upper room where the children slept, and in winter this room was so bitterly cold that we found one morning a ring of ice around Florence's little thumb which she had sucked during the night. In spite of this, we were generally envied for having found the house. During the spring of 1941, it became the meeting place for our friends who gathered every evening around the small stove on our ground floor. Among them were several very bright young men with an excellent sense of humour who contributed in a brilliant way to our conversation. They were all to perish later when the Germans occupied the whole of France. Although I remember having worn the French uniform until the time I left France, my services as a prestataire must have ended earlier, as I was able to use my days in walking the countryside in search of food. I became quite an expert in buying eggs from farmers, having learned by experience never to ask for more than one egg from each farmer for my hungry children, a request that was usually granted, although very reluctantly and at outrageous price. My parents, who now lived in America, had arranged for us to receive some money through a business associate of my father's in Switzerland. At the same time, they made enormous efforts to get us out of France and to the United States, a problem 
which presented some difficulties, as may be imagined. The quota for people born in Germany who wished to emigrate to the USA was, for obvious reasons, filled for years. The reason that my parents had themselves had no difficulties in this respect was that my father's birthplace was Paris. After an exchange of numerous letters and telegrams, we finally learned that a certificate of immigration to Cuba had been procured by my parents. From there, immigration to the USA would be only a formality. What now began was the chase for travelling papers, a passport, the French exit visa, and the visa for Spain, from where the boat for Cuba would leave. Together with my whole family, I had lost my German citizenship and consequently my German passport. Since I was not a French citizen, I did not have a French passport either. However, in order to obtain a visa, a passport, or at least a travelling paper, had to be obtained from the country of which I had last been a citizen. Germany did not have an ambassador in the non-occupied zone, where it was represented by the Swedish consul. I therefore had to travel to Vichy to obtain a German passport. The representatives of all the foreign countries in the non-occupied zone at that time were lodged at the Hôtel des Ambassadeurs in Vichy, one of the big hotels of that famous spa. I still remember entering the room in the hotel which served the Swedish consul as living room, bedroom and office. Some diapers were prominently displayed on a string over the sink and asking the consul for a German passport. I was dressed in a French army uniform, which caused the consul to ask how I could expect to obtain a German passport at the same time as being a member of the French army. An explanation was given, and the consul agreed to submit my request to the Armistice Commission in Wiesbaden. I therefore had to stay in Vichy a few more days while the request was dealt with. When I returned to the consul, he had received the authorization from Wiesbaden to provide me with a travelling paper. He refused, however, to put my children's names on it as they were French citizens. They travelled on Anne's German passport, which had not yet expired. For the Cuban visa, Anne and I had to travel to Marseille, where we were almost caught in a police action caused by the arrival of Pétain. Meanwhile, the sailing date for the boat on which my father had booked tickets for us came nearer and nearer, and the visa for our passage through Spain had not arrived. This time I had to go to Lyon, where the visa was delivered to me at the very last minute. Two days later, we were on our way to Spain. Since our boat was leaving from Bilbao, the logical way for us to enter Spain would have been to cross the border at Ondai, at the southwestern coast of France, from where the distance to Bilbao was very short. However, since this part of France belonged to the occupied zone, we had to make the enormous detour to the western coast of France, down to Barcelona, and across all of Spain to Bilbao. We spent the first night of our trip in Barcelona. Since this was shortly after the Spanish Civil War had ended, there was hardly anything left to eat. When I went to the railway station to buy our tickets for the trip to Bilbao, I was told that the trains were only running three times a week and that they were sold out for months. Our boat was to leave two days later. Under these circumstances, we packed our belongings and went to the station at the time when the next train to Bilbao was due, gave our luggage to a porter together with a big tip and asked him to carry it into the train. When the train arrived, it was full to the brim. The porter 
managed to obtain a seat for Anne and the children, while I had to stand throughout the night. In the early morning hours, we reached Longrono, where we had to leave the train because of flooding on the track. A taxi was found which agreed to take us, but not our luggage, to the nearest railway station from which we could continue our journey. We left our luggage with a porter at Logrono, who promised to expedite it immediately to Bilbao. We made the rest of the trip in a local train, where we were comfortably seated. As we went along, we got into a conversation with a nice elderly lady who asked us where we planned to stay in Bilbao. We told her that we had liked our hotel in Barcelona and planned to stay at one which belonged to the same chain. The lady thereupon advised us not to go to this hotel, which was extremely expensive, and recommended in its place a much cheaper hotel, called the Hotel d'Inglaterra, which had the added advantage of being situated right next to the railroad station. We thanked her profusely, and on our arrival went immediately to the Hotel d'Inglaterra. I left Anne and the children on a couch in the hall of the hotel, and went to the reception desk for the formalities of checking in. When this was done, I went back to my family and found Anne, ashen and visibly alarmed, pointing at a large photo on the other side of the hall, a life-size picture of Adolf Hitler. Here we were, running away from this man and ending up right in his arms. The truth in this case was, however, less horrible than it appeared. Mr. Loeffler, the owner of the hotel, was a German who was married to an Englishwoman, hence the name of the hotel. As a German subject, he was obliged to show his adherence to the Nazi regime, but in fact his conversing with us in German was very helpful in view of our ignorance of the Spanish language. The first instance of the help we received from Mr. Loeffler was when we arrived at the office of the shipping company to secure our cabins. There, we were told, there was no more room on the boat. Naturally, we stood our ground, and helped by Mr. Loeffler, who acted as interpreter, we had our tickets accepted, even though for accommodation which was far below the level my parents had paid for. As a matter of fact, cabins on the few available boats were being sold many times over, and we were lucky to get berths at all. Our next problem was that the little money we had left was in foreign currency, which it was impossible to exchange against Spanish money at that particular time. Luckily, I happened to recall the name of a business friend of my father in Bilbao, and we went to his house, where we presented him with our difficulties. The man spoke only Spanish, but his sister, who lived with him, was able to translate our story from the French. He graciously gave us some money, but refused to take our foreign currency. When my father, a short while later, sent him the amount we had borrowed, it was returned to him with a note saying that he did not recall the matter but our troubles were not yet over. Our luggage, which we had left at Logrono, had not arrived on the eve of the departure of our boat. I decided to travel back to Logrono with a note from Mr. Loeffler explaining the situation. I still remember vividly my arrival at midnight in that romantic old Spanish town in full moonlight, where the only person to be found at the station at the time was a policeman to whom I handed my note. He asked me a question, which I understood to mean that he wanted me to describe the porter with whom we had left our luggage. I answered him as well as I could, and he took me for a walk through the medieval moonlit streets of Logrono 
until we came to an old house with a balcony where my guide shouted a name, which after a while brought to the balcony a yawning man in a nightshirt. It was indeed our porter. He assured me that our luggage had in the meantime safely arrived in Bilbao and went back to bed. I took the next train back to Bilbao, where I arrived on the morning of the day of our departure. After a long search, it turned out that our luggage had been at the pier since the day before. Since these were all our earthly belongings, we were much relieved. In fact, it was rather a sorry assembly of odd pieces, which embarrassed my father greatly when, beneath the disdainful looks of the doorman, we appeared with it at his elegant apartment house on the Upper East Side of New York. But that was still a month away. In the meantime, we spent 18 days on board the good ship Magallanes under circumstances which at other times would have appeared to us rather unpleasant, but which in our state of euphoria at having escaped from danger we accepted without complaint. When we arrived in Cuba, we were met by my parents who had come from New York in an excursion boat. We spent a day in Havana together and then returned to New York with them in the same boat. For the first few days in Havana, we were kept in a refugee camp, which we considered a marvellous place compared to our previous living conditions. We then received our papers and spent the remaining days with our parents. We reached New York at the end of March 1941. I was 31 years old at that time, and from then on the store of my life must be considered an anticlimax. Thanks to my parents, we had escaped catastrophe by the narrowest of margins. Only a year later, news began to reach us of the terrible fate of some of our close relatives and friends whom we had left behind. Among them, two of my aunts, my cousin, Emil Schwarzschild, the constant companion of my youth, we were both named after the same grandfather, and his young wife, who were all taken by the Nazis in Holland, deported and put to death. It is still difficult for us to grasp the reasoning and horror of these years. But for us, life continued, and I had to think of the future in a new country for me and my family. The small stock of books I owned I had left in Paris, never to be recovered. I had set my hope on the arrival in America of Dr. Erwin Rosenthal, who, when I met him in Paris, had spoken of his plans to continue his business in the United States. His firm, founded by his father, Jacques Rosenthal, was one of the most renowned rare book establishments in Germany before Hitler, and mentioned that I could possibly work for him. We spent the summer in Brighton Beach, the only place on the seaside which could be reached from New York by a five-cent subway fare. There we rented a bungalow, and there Claude acquired his knowledge of English by playing with the other children. When, after two months, Dr. Rosenthal arrived, he rented an office in Madison Avenue, where a firm bearing my name was established. I worked there for the next two years, the later part of which was at a different address, 555 Fifth Avenue, at the very generous salary of $50, later $60 a week. Many of my fellow refugees were working for $12 a week at that time. The antiquarian book business was still suffering from the recession of the 1930s and was far from brilliant. I remember that early one morning, when I was alone in the office, Dr. Streeter from the Yale Medical Library came in and bought a book. About an hour later, Erwin Rosenthal arrived together with his brother-in-law, Professor Leonardo Olschke, 
beaming all over, I greeted them with the words, I just sold a book! Leonardo Olschke looked puzzled. Young man, he asked, isn't that the usual thing? Alas, it was not. Another episode, but in a different context, I often speak of in later years. One day, when I was again alone in the office, a tall, distinguished-looking gentleman came in who wished to see some of our incunabula. At that time, I was still very eager to show off my knowledge, and when I put before him a 15th-century piece of printing by Jensen, I commented, You know, this is the type which inspired Bruce Rogers, the renowned type designer, when he designed his famous Bible. My customer looked down at me from his height and said quietly, I am Bruce Rogers. That taught me a lesson. My collaboration with Erwin Rosenthal lasted about two years. Sometime after the United States had entered the war, it became evident that I had to make a decision either to enlist in the army or change to essential war work. Despite my absolute incompetence at anything mechanical, I decided for the latter, since I had now had the responsibility for a family, including two small children. I therefore attended a trade school, where I learned how to operate a lathe. A distant relative, who worked for the duration in a small machine shop in Manhattan, got me a job at his place of work. Here I spent the next two years, the most unhappy ones in my whole life. Not so much because of the environment, for my colleagues were actually a rather nice bunch of people, but because of my constant feeling of inadequacy. Our boss was a mechanic of Swiss origin, who had changed his name from Knecht, meaning servant, to its opposite of knight. He subcontracted for an airplane factory for which he produced just one part, a valve, I believe. The need for workers in the war industry was considerable. This is the only explanation why I was not fired on the first day. Mr. Knight's nephew, who was the foreman, constantly said to me, Emil, have you no imagination? How true this was showed every time when my machine broke down. As long as the machine was running, I was more or less able to manage, but once it had stopped, I was helpless. I had to go to Mr. Knight and ask for his help. Mr. Knight was not a talkative man. He said good morning when he came, and good night when he left, and very little in between. Without saying a word, he came over to my machine, stood silently in front of it, took a lighter from his pocket, and got busy lighting his pipe. When this was done, he reached for an oil can, removed a screw, put oil in, and said, go ahead. The machine, of course, worked again, but the experience and others like it left me depressed. On the day the armistice was signed, my services were not needed any longer, and I lost my job. At that time, my self-esteem was at such a low point that I had almost lost the courage to continue my original profession, which I had now to do on my own account. However, having no other choice, I began to conduct my business from home on a small scale. It took several months until I found my confidence again, and the exact point when that happened is the subject of a story which I have often told. One day, I received the catalogue of a rather indifferent book sale at the Swan Auction Galleries in New York. Included in this catalogue was the description of a small incunable of a religious text which caught my eye. As every antiquarian bookseller knows, religious texts, even in 15th century editions, 
are rarely of great commercial value. However, the rather short description of the book mentioned a woodcut on the title page representing a woman and a dog. This caught my attention. A secular representation in a religious book? The books were exhibited a few days before the sale, and I went to the exhibition to look at the little volume. The moment I saw the title page, I realised that the woman was not a woman and the dog was not a dog. Much more appropriate to the text, it represented St. Jerome and the Lion. However, the catalogue who described it as a woman and a dog could have been excused. The style of the woodcut was far removed from the stiff representations usually found in 15th century books, and the flowing gown of St. Jerome could have been taken for that of a woman, just as the nervous movement of the lion could be said to have resembled the movement of a leaping dog. It was obvious that the illustration was the work, not of the usual artisan woodcutter, but of a real artist. Who was he? I was now at the point when my former boss stood in front of my lathe to find the way to make it run. I took a look at the imprint at the end of the text, which said Basel, Bergmann von Olpe, 1492. And here Mr. Knight opened the screw and put the oil in. Basel, Bergmann von Olpe, 1492. This was the printer and the period of a famous illustrated book, The Ship of Fools, by Sebastian Brandt, the illustrations of which have been attributed to Albrecht Dürer. It needed only a little research to ascertain that the woodcut in the little book at the Swan Galleries was a work of Dürer, who at that time was travelling through Basel where he worked for the printer Bergmann von Olpe. I bought the book at a low price and sold it shortly afterwards for what appeared at the time a very nice profit. However, it was not this profit which gave me so much pleasure as the fact that it restored my confidence in the work I was doing, which I have continued to do until this day. Here I am ending my memoirs. The forty years that followed were not eventful enough to be recorded, and at least part of it was witnessed by those who have read the above. On the whole, they were happy years, and happy people have no history. My hope is that this happiness will last until the end of my days. August 1987 That was James Fleming reading the second part of the memoirs of Emil Offenbacher. Tune in next week for another Book Collector podcast, and in the meantime... Visit thebookcollector.co.uk to read online articles, view booksellers' catalogues, and subscribe to our journal. It's less than the price of a Netflix subscription and far more valuable. Receive four beautiful quarterly issues, plus get access to our entire digital archive. 70 years of erudite articles, illustrations, reviews, news, obituaries, auction reports, and more. Everything you could want to know about book collecting. Whether you're researching, learning, or just browsing for fun, it's the place to go. Visit thebookcollector.co.uk today.